This week had plenty of news to make the average entertainment fan mad or happy. Hello and welcome to the Nerd Explosion podcast. I'm your host, John Wintrub, and I am here, as always, with the Handed Park himself, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Doing really well. Uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of February. Uh, a lot of good shows came out this week. A lot of good stuff that we watched, especially last night. And I'm excited to talk about it and roast some decisions on Netflix. <laughs> well, before we get into the roasting of Netflix's dumb entertainment decisions, we got a little bit of Star Wars news, as always, to talk about, because we always love to talk about Star Wars news on the Absolutely. And the big one from this week was announced by Soraya Wilson, who, of course, had an interview with Ryan Johnson, and I'm very jealous of this, of course, because I love almost all of his films. But particularly, she talked to him a lot about his feature with Star Wars, and he told her that his Star Wars trilogy is still happening. We have no dates or specific timeline on that because he's currently working on the sequel to Knives Out, and likely wants to spend as much time as he can on that before dedicating a whole decade of his life to Star Wars. But what are your thoughts on this, Sean? Well... First of all, Knives Out is great. It's in both of our top 30 all-time favorite films list. It is amazing, and I can't wait to see what he does for the sequel. I know it's going to be great. He, he was made to make films like Knives Out, so for him to make the sequel also me, means that I'm already super excited for it. Now, with Star Wars, obviously... Now, here's the thing. I am not... Our good friends, Cam Richardson and Johnny Cream, where I hate The Last Jedi. I don't. See, in my life, because my parents usually disagreed on things, I usually am in the middle. I don't love The Last Jedi like you do, John Wintrow. But I don't hate it either. I like it. I enjoy it. Like I said, I'm in the middle ground. It seems like I'm in the middle ground so many things. But Ryan Johnson... When, when The Last Jedi was, was good, it was absolutely fantastic. I love what they did with Kylo, Ray, and Luke. Everything outside of that was a bit questionable, which is why it is probably the m- movie that I have the most mixed feelings of on of all time. But here's the thing. He does know Star Wars very well. The fact that he basically roasted the Jedi in the prequels, making the prequels and the Clone Wars better, which... You know, that, that that was probably my favorite part of The Last Jedi. And he knows he knows what makes Star Wars great. Now, with this new trilogy, obviously, it's either going to be is a completely different uh, time frame or just, you know, whatever he decides to do, whatever he decides to do. And I think if he's given the creative freedom that he deserves, like he's had for Knives Out then I truly feel like he can create a great Star Wars piece. I would hopefully expect that it wouldn't take place during the Skywalker saga. That way he does it, that way he's not constrained by continuity. Because if you're going to do anything in the Skywalker saga, you have to make sure that the continuity stays the same because we've had a lot of issues with that in the past. Luckily, basically they've all been resolved. But if Rian Johnson can have full control over Star Wars, film, I feel like it's going to be great. And it's going to add a lot to Star Wars, considering that Rian Johnson does know 
what makes Star Wars great, and that's why I personally like The Last Jedi and not, you know, hate it like certain other people do. Yeah, we also got a few other bits of tidbits from this interview, such as Ryan Johnson viewing Kylo and Rey's relationship as romantic, despite what the Rise of Skywalker novel will have you know. <laughs> stating that their kiss in that film was platonic and between friends. Because, you know, friends kiss on the lips during near-death situations. All right, look, I'm just, I'm just going to be completely blunt about this. Like, I'm sorry. I, I just started a recent relationship, and I can tell you for a fact that, that friends do not kiss, okay? Like, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. I get what the writer of the novel adaptation of The Rise of Skywalker meant by it, but I'm very glad that Ryan Johnson is on our side of this, which of course he is. I mean, he has specifically said that The Last Jedi probably has the most romantic moment in all of Star Wars, which is the hand-holding between Kylo and Rey. Yeah, see... He actually understands what is happening. Rian Johnson understands the Rise of Skywalker better than the people who made the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. What? Why? <laughs> why couldn't he have just made the Rise of Skywalker or, you know, all three? Oh, that would been great. Well, it's too late for that now. But at least we're going to get his trilogy at some point. It'll probably, again, it'll probably be after um, Knives Out. Um, sequel which will of course star Daniel Craig again as Benoit um, Blanc who played in the first film um, and these films will probably start production after Patty Jenkins and Taika Waititi's films because those are the next two that are coming out which we of course talked about on the podcast back in December when they were announced oh yeah the gigantic news dump day yes yeah that that <laughs> so- my voice is still recovering from that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I am excited for those. I definitely am more excited for Ryan Johnson's trilogy just because I know how much he loves Star Wars. And since I love The Last Jedi, I'm more than happy to get more of that stuff in Star Wars. Like, I like what Taika did with his episode of The Mandalorian. I know that his film is going to be really interesting and unique, but Ryan Johnson, I already know exactly what type of film he would make when given access to Star Wars. Yeah, I think Taika Waititi and Ryan Johnson, which if you look at those two directors, they made two stellar 2019 films, Jojo Rabbit and Knives Out, which were, were both fantastic and both definitely had vast control from directors. See, here's the thing. If you give directors control to make the movies they want to make, they are going to be great. What a novel concept. Yeah, it's interesting to note that The Last Jedi is of the sequel trilogy is probably the one that was least affected by Lucasfilm um, forcing choices onto the staff and the crew working on it. Hmm. Imagine that. (laughs) That's that's kind of interesting. Um, considering that it I mean the Rise of Skywalker is pretty polarizing, but I'd say that most um casual audiences probably liked it. Um I think that The Last Jedi is probably the film of the sequel trilogy that has the most vitriol among not just fans, but the average person that went to go see it. Yeah, I mean, it's represented in our very own friend group where 
even though I only just like it, I still like it more than most in our friend group, which yeah, I'm the person that I'm the only one that actually loves it. I've gotten into several heated arguments about this, but that's okay. Cause Cameron Richardson at the Rich Report doesn't like the original star Wars. So <laughs> oh, we could agree. Like we could agree. That's that, that's, like, a, that's out of pocket. Loving the last Jedi. And then there's not liking the original star Wars. That is the reason for star Wars existing. <laughs> Yeah, it's only like possibly one of, if not the most important films to ever come out in cinema history. Yeah, I've heard many nuclear takes, but that one is a nuclear take enough to blow up the world. Yes, it is. Now, I mean, and but Johnny Crane has also said that it's the weakest of the original trilogy, which that's that's a bit of a hot take, but not not true. I Return of the Jedi exists. Like, I'm not. I don't think the Return of the Jedi is bad by any means. It's good. It just has many, many issues, including pacing and Han Solo and, and not being written well. <laughs> um, yes. Leia not reacting to Darth Vader being her dad in the more apparent way. Or Han just immediately forgiving Lando, even though Lando literally was the reason he was in Carbonite. Yeah. I can, I can kind of accept that one that's like one of the issues with jedi that i can kind of accept that doesn't really hurt my enjoyment too much but it's that's very fair strange that return of jedi didn't keep the emotional center that empire strikes back had and i get that's because there was a different director and george lucas was more involved with the storytelling which is a good and bad thing um but it's it's just it's interesting um it's, it's funny to look at both the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy and the last movie of both of them both suffer from very similar issues. This is very true. It's just that Return of the Jedi, Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas both were involved with Return of the Jedi, which is probably one of the reasons why it was still a competent film, which was yes. not the case with The Rise of Skywalker. I mean, the, the last third of the movie is is amazing the first two thirds are a bit rough wait that wait, that sounds like another star wars movie oh wait <laughs> rogue one <laughs> yeah yeah rogue one has its problems too i would say that return of the jedi is better than rogue one just because we care more about what happened with the characters because we've had them in other movies before jedi yes uh because, yeah, every scene with Luke, Vader, and, and Palpatine in the Death Star is perfection. Yeah, I really like that. I actually really like the idea for the Ewoks, and I don't mind um, the battle on Endor. I really like the space battle with Wanda, with Wanda, with Lando captaining the Millennium Falcon. Likewise. Yeah. So, like, for the most part, Jedi is, is entertaining and fun and good. It's just that it has its, it has its issues. It does have its issues, but but yes, hopefully this new Rian Johnson trilogy makes more good Star Wars films because we certainly need because we certainly need a good Star Wars film after the last one that came out. Oh, absolutely, and I'm hopeful that we'll have plenty of those. I'm still I'm iffy about Patty Jenkins, but I'm sure it could still be really good, um, and I'll at least be interested in checking it out. But it's Taika and Ryan's films that I'm really excited. Yes, and yeah, I'm excited for Rogue Squadron as well. It's going to be great. Patty Jenkins is a good filmmaker. I don't blame her for how terrible Wonder Woman 1984 was. No, so. they, she had th- there were three writers on that film. 
I'm certain that Jeff Johns is one of the people to blame for how messy the screenplay was. But it's not like Patty had a couple odd choices in the film. I don't think everything was her fault. Like having more than one introductory scene was definitely something that she specifically asked for. But a lot of the writing and flow decisions were not hers alone to make. Yeah, that's true. But moving on to a director that we definitely love, um, Edgar Wright is set to adapt Stephen King's The Running Man for Paramount. Yeah. Um, first of all, Edgar Wright, great director. Uh, your favorite, I think? Yes. Um, he is absolutely my favorite director. Okay, that's what I thought. I mean, he literally made your favorite film of all time. So Yeah, the last time he adapted anything from a written medium to the screen was Scott Pilgrim, and it's my favorite film of all time. So, yes, yeah, Scott Pilgrim vs. World, I believe it is number seven on my all time favorite movies list. It's one of my all time favorite movies as well. It's a blast to watch, and and uh, in our oh wow, I cannot talk. Uh, our friend group, I watched it last summer, and all of them loved it. It was it was a great time. Hi, if you haven't watched Scott Pilgrim vs. World, please watch it. It's on Netflix. It is more it is more than worth your time it is every second's a blast but Edgar Wright is returning and this is going to be his first film since Baby Driver which is also in both of our top 30 films list it is that film is also a masterpiece and he is going to do a film a 1980s of a 1987 film which is based on Stephen King's The Running Man which Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in the 1987 film and it's about a game show in dystopian America where you have to escape. And if you don't, you get a brutal death. Yeah. Very in- interesting premise. And this is not a kind of film that Edgar Wright has made. I mean, yeah, he's made like zombie thrillers and stuff like that. And I haven't seen every single one, so I can't fully say, but at the same time, like a dystopian kind of Hunger Games style feel in a way where, where it's dystopian and you have, you know, totalitarian government and you have a game show like designed to express power. So it kind of has a Hunger Games feel to it in a sense. But with Edgar Wright, it's going to be a thousand times better than that ever was. Yeah, I think it was likely tapped to adapt The Running Man because of his next movie, which is coming out this year. Last Night in Soho, um, which will be his first ever horror film and has multiple actors and actresses in it, such as Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith. Wait a minute. Anya Taylor-Joy, the, the Elizabeth Harmon in Queen's Gambit? Yes, Elizabeth Very Harmon. nice. Very nice indeed. Great show, by the way. Recommend watching it if you haven't. So I am... Very excited to see what he can handle with a horror film with that. And The Running Man seems like a natural next step after that. He's a very safe director when it comes to adaptations, as seen with Scott Pogram and his work on Ant-Man for Marvel. Even though he left the project, he did still have a lot of insight and they did use most of his original script for the actual film itself. So he's a very safe choice when it comes to adapting something kind of crazy and out there i mean the world's end was pretty insane yeah 
because we don't know how Edgar Wright's brain works, but it's it definitely operates in a very interesting way that allows him to make some of the best movies I've ever seen. Yes. Uh, yeah, Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim, and World's End are absolute masterpieces. Yeah. I love almost every film he's made. I have a special place in my heart for Shaun the Dead and Hot Fuzz as well. So, let's roast Netflix. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Netflix Netflix is adapting Hours for the Last Airbender in the live action. And last year, just before the end of the year, we got the news that the creators were of the original animated series were leaving Netflix's adaptation for unknown reasons. All we know is that there were creative differences. And now that now that we're getting more and more information about the production of the show, we're slowly learning why they left. And the, the most recent news that we got about this was that the live action series will swap Katara and Sokka's ages. So Katara will be 16 and Sokka will be 14. Um, Aang's age will stay the same, though. He'll still be 12. This, of course, is going to cause many, many issues, among which include the fact that Sokka will no longer be the leader type character, or older brother type character for the group. And Katara's characterization will no longer be a subversion um, being that in the show, she is the more mature one, yet she is younger than Sokka is. Because Sokka being a warrior trying to be like his dad, Katara was trying to be more like her mom. So when her mom died, she had to fill that empty role. <sighs> okay, all right, prepare, prepare for Rand Unleashed. Okay, listen, first of all, the sake of authenticity, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is my favorite show of all time, uh, and I know it's basically in and out at this point. It is, yeah, it is my favorite show, and I don't think that'll ever change. So, when I heard this news, I was pissed, to say the least. Okay, let me explain why this is extremely terrible. Go even further than what you said. All right, listen. Sokka is a great character, your favorite character in Avatar The Last Airbender, and great character, great character. Sokka in season one is a bit of a jerk. He I have a misogynist just a bit. He yeah, he's sexist, he's a misogynist. Now, at the start of the show, he basically is taking the leadership roles in a lot of different things. He's basically training all the little kids to be to fight off the fire nation, even though you know Sokka's not exactly the best fighter. Let's just let's just put it like that. Uh he can be a bumbling idiot, but at the same time, he thinks that oh because i'm a male like i get all these lead roles and katara is just like oh you're just my little sister i'll protect you and do everything well guess what katara is actually way stronger than he is because she she has been training water bending on the side and Sokka doesn't believe her which you know literally is the first scene in the entire show literally the first scene in the entire show shows how Sokka is the is the misogynistic and sexist older brother and then in episode four, when Sokka goes to Kyoshi Island, he looks down on the female Kyoshi warriors because, well, they're female and he's male and he's automatically stronger than them, even yeah. though they capture him. Yeah, and, and Suki absolutely wrecks him and he gets humbled. <laughs> oh, yeah. He he gets absolutely humbled and where, where Sokka goes to Suki and asks to be trained because he realizes like, oh, well... 
Ooh, I was wrong about that. Literally, the that was the first four episodes of the show. And do you know how many episodes there were? 61. That was the first four episodes of the show. That was a great way to introduce Sokka because he already had a great arc to start off with. It already made Katara super strong because she was the younger sister, but she was the stronger one. And it made the confrontation between Katara and Master Paku in the Northern Water Tribe just amazing, considering that, you know, women in the Northern Water Tribe are supposed to be only healers, not warriors, even though Katara is very strong to say, at least. I mean, she literally, she literally beat Zuko pretty easily uh, when, when their first fight in, in the North Pole, so Northern Water Tribe. So... To swap their ages, you would get rid of all of that. And that's just the first season. And that's just two of the main characters. Zuko's not even a part of that. Aang's yeah. not even a part of that. It's literally a story between those two. And considering, you know, the first book is about water, it focuses on those two. So, of course, that's going to be prevalent. Oh, and by the way, if you get rid of that... Where is the character development? Oh, it's so stupid. Yeah. And even worse, this also increases the age gap between Aang and Katara, which a lot of fans are assuming that this could potentially mean that they're going to go for um, Zutara or Zuko and Katara instead of Aang and Katara as the main relationship in the show. Okay. First of all, just think about this. Katara would be 20. Aang would be 16. Yes. You're 16. You're underage. Yes. Look, four-year age gap is fine. Be over 18, though, okay? Because that's crossing a line here, first of all. Second of all, look, Zuko is my all-time favorite fictional character. Literally, my car is named Zuko in in coming judgments from, from people listening. But Zuko and Katara do not belong together. It's not the way it's supposed to be, okay? Zuko has someone that he can spend the rest of his life with. Someone that's way better for him romantically than Katara, and that's, oh wait, that's Mei, who who Zuko has been fond of since they were kids. This is not that hard. Stop changing things that aren't broken. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this was the last straw. Like, this was the the brick that broke the Campbell's back because it was, I can imagine that the creators would have left over them not being able to argue with the production staff of the live action show over a decision like this. And this is only just one bit of news. There's should, there could be all kinds of other issues that we don't know about yet. (sighs) Next topic, please, before I blow a gasket. <laughs> yeah, and happier, more enjoyable news. Demon Slayer's manga's creator was on the Time 100 list This of top 100 people um, of last year, which is really awesome. Um, this was likely due to the success that the film saw, but also the manga is one of the best-selling manga in the world right now. Uh, so I was able to go through Demon Slayer during this past winter break, and the first season was really enjoyable. Uh, the action is really cool. While I'm not the biggest fan of its English dub, especially Zach Aguilar voicing Tanjiro, it definitely was a very fun story, and 
it's set up for some future incredible seasons as we get to more of the main villains in the show. I love the way the combat system set up. I love Johnny on Bosch's character gear. That's the best part of the English dub. And it's a really fun, enjoyable show with a lot of heart in it. Although I'm not the biggest fan of Sunitsu, who yells half the time. But even though Demon Slayer, I wouldn't say is a masterpiece of an anime, it's definitely a really enjoyable one. And an anime that I'm glad is getting a lot of recognition. As we talked about, Demon Slayer is now the highest grossing anime film of all time, even more than Spirit Away, which is nuts. In Japan, specifically. In, in Japan, yeah. Which is absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. And Demon Slayer's had such a huge cultural impact on Japan that it's amazing to see. And with, uh, okay, I'm going to try to not to butcher this guy's name. Uh, Kyoyoharu Go. Kotage. Koyaharu Gotoge. Gotoge. Okay. I, I knew I was going to butcher it. I, I apologize. I knew I was going to butcher it. But the fact that he's made such a strong show slash manga shows how talented he is. And he's only 31 years old. So he does have a bright future ahead. And I'm excited to see what project he does next. And considering that he's probably learned from Demon Slayer, he could possibly make something even better going forward. So that's very exciting for us anime fans. Yeah, it's important to note that Demon Slayer is still getting written today. It's not over. <laughs> um, yes. But because of the pandemic, um, he's been having a little trouble um, getting himself to consistently write it, which is why there hasn't been anything new um, so far this year, which happens. That's perfectly normal. Um, that happens to Hirohiko Araki, the writer of JoJo's very often, which is why part eight still hasn't finished being written despite it going since 2011. So yeah. When is that ever going to finish? <laughs> I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> um, but no, I like, I like Demon Slayer. It's good. I wouldn't say it's the best manga like ever made, but it's fantastic. And he deserves all the praise he's getting for all the accomplishments that he's had over the last couple of years. We're, of course, getting the second season of Demon Slayer later this year, so I'm excited to check that out, as well as the movie once it finally hits um, a North American release, which was announced during the Crunchyroll Awards, which we're going to talk about in a moment. <laughs> yes, because obviously the movie is canon, and like it, it's literally like a continuation of the end of season one, so like obviously before season two comes out, watching the movie is something that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, unlike the My Hero Academia movies, this directly bridges... Um, the length of time between the first and second seasons. So watching the movie is required to actually watch the show, which doesn't happen very often. That's very rare when it comes to anime films. Usually they're ideas that either the creator um, didn't want to implement within the main story was telling, like with My Heroes movies, or they're just kind of spinoff material that was made to make more money or cash out on the property, which is the case for most of Fullmetal Alchemist and Dragon Ball's movies. Some of which are actually pretty good. Dragon Ball has had a couple of gems, like the Broly movie, which came out a couple of years back. But for the most part, they're kind of missable. Yeah, that is very true. Speaking of the Crunchyroll Awards. Yeah, we had the Crunchyroll Anime Awards um, a couple of days ago, as if we were recording this. And, oh boy, <laughs> well, there are a lot of stuff. <laughs> We'll go through each one, but and we'll get the anime of the year last, of course. But to start off, we'll talk about the genre awards because there were a few genre award winners, and 
For best comedy, the nominees were, of course, Love is War, Kakushi Goto, Isaacen, um, My Next Wife is a Villainess, which I've actually heard really good things about, Sweet Princess in the Demon Castle, and The Misfit of Demon King Academy, which I reviewed for Sean's site. Um, it was pretty obvious that Love is War was going to win this. Love is War is one of the best manga of, um, of all time, and it's one of the best slice of life anime ever made. Um, so it's a natural pick for this category and that one, of course. So, yeah, love is war is something I'm very interested as to uh, going through at some point. Um, I haven't really seen any of these on the list, but I just know that love is war is something I want to watch. Similarly with best fantasy, like as great as some of the shows on here are like decadence and Doro Hidoro, it was pretty obvious that ReZero was going to take this just based off of the amount of effect that the second season had over the anime community. Um, ReZero trended almost every single week during the airing of the first half of its second season, especially the first few episodes. <laughs> oh, yeah, because we, we, ta- we spent many Nerd Explosion episodes talking about ReZero episodes, and rewatching it increased my love of the show. I, yeah, my love for the show skyrocketed after rewatching it with Cameron, who we basically converted him into a diehard ReZero fan. And yeah, it's the best Isekai ever made with the Shield Hero being a very close second. And I'm glad it won this award. Yeah. And then of course, best drama was probably the one that was a little more stacked because among the contenders for best drama were Beastars, Fruits Basket, Great Pretender, and Sing Yesterday for Me, which I, which I know all four of them are really great. However, Fruits Basket is easily the most popular of these as well as the best one. So naturally, Fruits Basket was the one that took this category. Yes, Fruits Basket is, in my opinion, the second best anime ever made behind Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Uh, I second season was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I I reviewed it for the Kane of Clarkin, probably and, and probably an article that I'm super um, that I'm probably the article I'm most proud of. And I'm it's it's perfection in every single way. And I'm glad it won this award. Yeah, and we talked about several of the episodes on the podcast before the dub for season two finished. So we obviously love it here. <laughs> yes, I even have I even have a Fruits Basket t-shirt. Yeah. Um, for opening and ending sequence, this is probably the first time I've ever seen the same artist win for both opening and ending because Ali who of course did the opening for Beastars Wildside, which is also number one on my list as well. One for opening um, and ending with um, Jutsu Kaisen's Lost in Paradise, which is also fantastic. Um, so I was really happy about this. I would have been okay if um, Great Pretenders um, GP by Yutaka Yamada or Love is War um, Daddy Daddy Do by, Iri- by Masayuki Suzuki and Iri Suzuki if either of those had won, or even Easy Breezy from Keep Your Hands Off Isaacin, but um, Wild Side was the natural choice for best opening sequence, in my opinion. It was number one on my list that I did back in January for The Handed Clark as well. Yeah, so looking at the nominees for best ending sequence, um, obviously Jujutsu Kaisen, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that one later. It's been very popular, but I'm sorry. I have to say that the Great Pretender by Freddie Mercury ending the Great Pretender, like that, 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 that's amazing. I love that ending so much, and I'm glad it at least got nominated. But it would have been really cool to see it win. 
And for opening, obviously, for the Cannon Clark, you you said how Beastars was the best opening sequence, which, yeah, I can't really disagree with that. I love Great Pretender's opening as well. And and Haikyuu's opening, which was also nominated, is also really good. Haikyuu's uh, a show I'm a really big fan of, and we're actually about to go through it with uh, Cameron Richardson pretty soon. Very exciting. Watch Haikyuu. It's, it's great. But that's also a great opening. But I will, I will admit that B stars it takes the cake. Yeah, um, probably the category that we were most are most excited to talk about is best voice actor performance in English because we here watch almost entirely English dubs, most of which are really good. Most English dubs as of recent years have been fantastic, with only a few exceptions, like certain bits and pieces of Demon Sawyer's dub haven't been that good, but. This category was really stacked. I don't think I would have been mad if anyone took this award. The nominees were, of course, Aaron Phillips as Laurent in Great Pretender, Anaris Quinones as Echidna in ReZero, Crispin Freeman as, oh my God, I might butcher the heck out of this name, um, Zeus Sudra from Fate Grand Order, Jayon Bosch as Bam from Tower of God, Jonah Scott as Wegoshi, the protagonist of Beastars, and Zeno Robinson as Hawks in My Hero Academia. Yeah, very stacked list. Now, if I had to be perfectly honest, um, when it comes to when it comes to voice actor, like if I had to like pick like the best like voice acting performance, I would have picked Laura Bailey from Fruits Basket. That's just me though. I'm a little upset she's not nominated here because I think I would say that was the best of 2020. Yeah. However, Zeno so- Robinson is great yeah. as Hawks. I loved Every scene that Hawks and, and Endeavor shared together, uh, Patrick Seitz and Zena Robinson had fantastic chemistry. Zena Robinson's also great as Garfield. And I think he deserves a lot of praise, and I'm glad that he got the recognition he deserves. While I would have, while I think Laura Bailey was absolutely robbed here, at the uh-huh. same time, I'm not going to get upset for Zena Robinson winning because, yeah, that, that guy is amazing. Yeah, it's important to note here that they usually do not nominate the same person for more than one year. And Laura Bailey was nominated last year for her role as Toru in Fruits Basket. And she lost to, um, Billy Kamets as now Fumi and Shield Hero. <laughs> oh, I, I can't be upset about that because because Billy Kamets was literally born to voice now Fumi. I can't be upset. Gosh darn it! I can't be upset about that one. <laughs> yeah, and that's the only reason why she wasn't nominated this year. It's the same reason why All Might wasn't nominated more than once for My Hero Academia. That's fair. So. Um, moving on to the character-specific awards, for best couple, we had quite a few interesting ones. Um, if anyone's read my recent articles, they know exactly who I wanted to win this. <laughs> but the nominees included the main couple from My Next Wife as a Villainess, um, Chizuru and Kazuya from Rena Girlfriend, which made me roll my, my eyes out of my head and onto the ground, and then I smashed them with my foot. <laughs> um, Kaguya and... Um, Shirogane from Kaguya-sama, Love is War. Um, Kotoko Iwanaga and Kurosakuragawa from Inspector. Wegoshi and Haru from Beastars, which is probably the weirdest one on this list, not going to lie. And Nasa and Tsukasa Yuzuki from Tony Kawa. And if you've read my my couple's article, you know how much I love Nasa and Tsukasa. 
I'm really glad that NASA and Sukasa won. I'm so happy. <laughs> that made me, that put such a big smile on my face. I, I had to stop myself from cheering to annoy my neighbor. Because <laughs> I was so dang happy. Ah, yes. Tony Kawa. An anime I really want to see. Apparently, it's very wholesome. Uh, it's so good. Yeah. So, that's good to see. Yeah. Um, for best character design, we, of course, had several really good nominees, among of which were um, Yoshiyuki Sadamoto and Hirotaka Koto for Great Pretender, but um, Yashihime, Keep Your Hands Off Isaac and Taiwet Bound, Hanako-kun, Tower of God, and BNA were all nominated as well. I'm pretty sure that I voted for BNA for this one just because of how creative the animal, the human character designs were by um, Studio Trigger. But ultimately, it was Toilet Bound Hanakun that won, and I have several friends that are really happy about this, including um, several members of the Dubcast podcast, which I've talked with a few times on Twitter about English dubs. So it's really nice to see um, such an interesting and unique show win Best Character Design. I might have to watch it at some point now. <laughs> Yeah, and Great Pretender was nominated. The character designs are really good in Great Pretender, but the the art style and the scenery is what stands out more than the more than the character designs. But it's worthy to get nominated. Yeah, um, which of course is what led it to getting nominated for best director. But even that couldn't give it a win because sadly, Keep Your Hands Off Isaac and was also nominated, and I can't really argue about that because the direction for Isaac is amazing. <laughs> it is so good. Um, Masaki, you, 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 oh my God. <laughs> Yuasa did an absolutely amazing job with his, with the direction for that series. And I can't recommend it enough as great as great pretender is. It is my pick for anime of the year, which we'll get to in the moment, but I can't really argue with Isaac winning best director. What is what is Isaac and exactly? it's a show about three younger high school, middle schoolish age kids trying to make a manga from scratch or an anime from scratch. Very interesting. It's very the art style is really unique, um, especially when showing off the ideas that are coming out of the minds of the characters. And it's one of the more fun and interesting stories that came out of um, 2020. It aired almost a year ago now because it was, it aired before the pandemic happened, before the anime industry got shaken up by um, COVID coming to Japan. I see. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, Best score was another one that was kind of stacked, um, including the likes of Kevin Pankin, who of course, did the score for Tower of God, but we know him for his work on The Rising of the Shield Hero, as well as the composers for Keep Your Hands Off Isaacin, um, Beastars, The God of High School, which I understand, even if I disagree with, and Japan Sinks 2020. However, the one that I hoped would win this one was Yutaka Yamada's work on Great Pretender. And I can't really be mad about Kevin Pakin winning. I have not seen Tower of God, but I have listened to several bits of the score for it. And Kevin Pinkin did do a fantastic job with the score for Tower of God, so I can't really be mad about it. 
Yeah, Great Pretender score is obviously amazing. The opening just constantly plays in my head. But at the, at the same time, Kevin Pinkin is amazing. I, Shield Hero's score is, is absolutely amazing. I, this is about to be a slightly hot take, but that is like one of, one of the very few things Shield Hero has above ReZero in that I, I prefer the score of, Re, of uh, Shield Hero by a little bit. But, I mean, ReZero is so great. But yeah, Kevin Pinkin's score in Shield Hero is one of the best scores I've seen in anime. And for him to win win it this year, even for a different anime, is still good to see. Yeah. Um, now, I have, a, I have a few thoughts about best fight scene. While I do like Deku versus Overhaul in My Hero's fourth season, I don't love it. I don't even think it's the best fight from the fourth season of My Hero. I don't... I think that Deku's fight against General Criminal and Mirio's own fight against Overhaul are both much better just from a writing standpoint than the fight between Deku and Overhaul. But I get that it's really visually stunning and that's probably one of the reasons why it was nominated. Yeah, I know people that love that fight because Deku got to go in 100% all for one and and many like Shonen fans really love that. But yeah, it, I would say it was only the third best fight in the season because I think, because yeah, high-end Nomu versus Endeavor was the best fight in season four, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, I I mean, I'm glad my hero fight won, but it, it was the wrong one. He should have done the one that ended season four, because yeah. that, that was amazing. Yeah, and compared to the other things that got nominated, I mean, MAPPA got nominated three times for this category. Um, two fights from the God of High School, and one from Jujutsu Kaisen. And there, I, while I don't love the God of High School, but one thing it does really well are the fight sequences. And I don't understand why um, Jin Mori versus Han Daly didn't take the win here. That should have easily been the one that won because of the amount of animation quality went into it, as well as it being the height of the writing for the God of High School. And even then... Like Jujutsu Kaisen's fight, which was um, between Gojo and the and the overarching antagonist Sukuna, is also fantastic. The amount of animation quality that went into that fight in Jujutsu Kaisen is nuts. Um, and then even with that, you you also have the fight between Brawler and Master in Akudama Drive, which is easily the best fight in that show. And it has some amazing art direction, and the fallout from that fight is just so good um it's crazy that a fight from my hero which is one of my favorite anime of all time isn't the one that i wanted to win here and that's purely because of which one um crunchyroll specifically picked to get nominated it it was a weird choice it was definitely a weird choice for sure speaking of excellent animation for the best animation category we had a lot of great nominees as well, um, featuring Beastars, Great Pretender, Jujutsu Kaisen, um, Keep Your Hands Off Isaac, and Princess Connect Redive, which of course sponsored the event, which is probably why it got nominated here, and The God of High School. Yeah, um, obviously, the way you described Isaac, like, it seemed like, you know, the animation was pretty spectacular, so that makes sense, but Great Pretenders was so, is so good, though. Yeah, it's, Great Pretenders and Jujutsu Kaisens are amazing. And while I, I do like and appreciate Isaac, and I wouldn't have been mad if Jujutsu Kaisen Great Pretender won this award instead. But I am really happy that Isaac did it. It's a lesser-known show. It was only a single core, yet it was able to win more than one award 
at the award show this year, which is awesome. Yeah, it's good to see the smaller shows get more love and recognition. Yeah. Now, probably the category that we're going to be most heated about is Best Antagonist. And as much as I like Jujutsu Kaisen, it did not deserve the win this. <laughs> like, Sukuna is fantastic. And the English dub, he's voiced by Ray Chase. And even this Japanese voice actor is really great. And he is a well-written, overarching antagonist, but he's not the main antagonist for the first half of Jujutsu Kaisen, which is what was considered for this award show. And this is a category that also had Akito from Fruits Basket, Echidna from ReZero, and Overhaul from My Hero in it, and none of them won. How in God's name did Akito not win this? I don't get it. Yeah, Akito was my personal pick, but I don't think Akito was ever going to win it. I think that it was way more likely for it to either be... I was hoping out for it to either be Echidna or Overhaul, because they're... ReZero and My Hero are a lot more popular than Fruits Basket is. Boo! It's just how it be. Um, so I figured that it would be one of them, and then when Sukuna's announced, I'm like, what? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he's, not even, he's not even the main villain of this arc of Jujutsu Kaisen. I don't get it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. My brain is not operating normally with this information. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, okay, even just eliminating Akito, even though she was clear choice, in my opinion, Echidna is a fantastic character, and she steals every scene that she's in, and even though Overhaul only lasted half a season, he still had a overarching impact on the story, and he was a very menacing presence, and Kellen Goff did a fantastic job voicing him. So, even with Echidna and Overhaul, like, like, they, like, damn, all, all three just got done dirty. Yeah, this is, oof. Like, I get I get that people love Jujutsu Kaisen. It is really good. But, like, of the awards that didn't deserve the win, this is, like, the one that definitely did not deserve the win. <laughs> but that's just my opinion. <laughs> I agree. Um, moving on, the best protagonist, which I'm sure you're not happy that Toru isn't here for this one either. <laughs> no, I am not happy about this at all. Yeah. I actually don't remember if she got nominated last year. I, I hope that she did. I'd have to go back and look. Um, but because Tanjiro, I'm pretty sure, was the one that won Best Protagonist last year. So, I mean, that's fair. In natural fashion, I assumed that Itadori from Jujutsu Kaisen would win um, because I do really like Itadori. Um, I mean, if I had the, like, if I really, like, wanted, if the person that I think best fit this category to win was either Midori Asakusa from Isaacen or Anos Voldigod from the Misfit of Demon King Academy, that's who I personally would have wanted to win. But I'm not going to be bad with Katarina Kois winning for My Next Wife as a Villainess. Again, I have many friends that love this show, and considering that it's not nearly as popular as, say, Jujutsu Kaisen or Haikyuu are, it's interesting that it was able to pull off a win here, which is really cool. And I appreciate Crunchyroll actually picking something that's less popular for this for this win. Yeah, once again, it's good to see smaller shows getting recognition. And yeah, I'm very happy to see Hinata being nominated for Haikyuu because obviously Haikyuu is great. And I think uh, Hinata is a great protagonist. And I would have liked him to win this, but also... Also, Anos, like, especially from, you know, your article about Misfit at Demon King Academy, that would have been really cool as well. Yeah. Speaking of 
of Shoyo getting into best boy, Shoyo did win best boy. <laughs> so while he didn't get best protagonist, he did get arguably the better, more important award. Ah, yes. Beautiful scenes of glorious joint emotion here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hinata is a great protagonist. Uh, he, you really, you really see his passion for volleyball in Haikyuu. He's very entertaining to watch and I love the way season two has helped him to grow even more because the last thing I, I haven't, I haven't finished season two, but from where I'm at in season two, like he's basically, he's basically hit a stubborn wall at this point and he's trying to break through that. And to see him break through that is just very interesting. Obviously I'm trying to be very loose with what I say here, but it's he, he's hit a little bit of a wall when it comes to the growth wise and to see him try to overcome that is very awesome. And I'm glad that the ward like displayed that. Cause I do love Hinata's story. I, I, I like him more. He's more interesting in season two than season one. So yeah. Get out of, yeah. Out of the choices for this category, I think that um, Hinata definitely is the one that fits the title of best boy the most. I think the only one that kind of comes close is Anos from the Misfit Demon King Academy, just because he's the nicest demon ward that I've ever met. <laughs> the, he's the least evil of the of the evil people. <laughs> this is very true. So, but we also had Best Girl, which since Toru was nominated last year, she's not in the Best Girl for this year. Boo. Um, which is strange because Kaguya is also nominated here and she was in the category last year. So whatever, whatever Funimation, I see what you got. My biggest issue is that there is one person that is glaringly not here. And considering that the Crunchyroll Awards were not around in 2015, I'm kind of pissed about this. Because <laughs> where the heck is Yui? <laughs> where did you, where did you go? Why is... Or Garu not nominated for anything. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> this is a crime against humanity. Like, Yui is not nominated Toru because she was in last year's, but then there's like not nominating Yui at all. <laughs> Yui's like Yui should have won this award in a landslide, and she's not even nominated. Get get out of here! I get, just just stop. Yeah, I mean, I'm perfectly fine with Kaguya winning for Love is War because she's fantastic. She's probably my second favorite character in Love is War. But, like, Yui would have annihilated this category if she got nominated. Let's not lie about that. Yes, Yui is queen. Yui is 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 great. Yeah, and I mean, some of the other nominees were pretty neat. Like, Chizuru from Rin the Girlfriend is obvious. And I, I appreciate that Abby is on here for Great Pretender, but it probably should have been Cynthia instead. Yeah, I'm like, I like honest. Cynthia a lot more. Yeah, Cynthia fits the best girl category more than Abby does. Um, yes. But, yeah, I'm I'm happy that Kaguya won, but Yui was absolutely robbed. She would have swept this category so hard. Dang, Yui just has the worst of luck in everything. Yeah, that's true. Makes me sad. Yeah. All right. Like basically, basically when when me, Winthrop, and Karen watched watched uh last fall, all three of us were basically just like massive fans of Yui. And yeah, that that that, that made watching the show very interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, of course, the, the big award that everyone watches the Crunchyroll Anime Awards for is anime of the year. 
And if you've read my article on Great Pretender, you know that I absolutely love Great Pretender, and it was my favorite anime to come out of 2020. And while I like several of the other nominees here, like Beatstars and Jujutsu Kaisen and Isaacen, I thought Great Pretender was the best choice for winning. I did not think it was going to win, though. As last year, Demon Slayer was the one that took home anime of the year. I had a feeling that the big popular shonen that is Jujutsu Kaisen would take it home again this year. And I was right. So I'm not upset about this that much because Jujutsu Kaisen is really good, even though I would have put Great Pretender above it and would have preferred Great Pretender winning. Um, I also think that Isaac and would have been a better choice as well, but I'm not gonna. I'm not mad that Jujutsu Kaisen won. This this anime has made me shed tears, so I'm not mad that it took anime of the year at all. Yeah, Great Pretender probably deserved to win because Great Pretender is amazing, but Jujutsu Kaisen. It's I haven't seen it, but it seems to be a very well done shonen anime more than just your typical over the top shonen. Um, Absolutely. It's definitely one that I'm very interested in checking out in the future, but uh, great pretender got robbed and like they were runner up in so many areas and didn't yeah, win. Did they win a single award? No. I don't think they won anything. Nope. That's so sad. <laughs> uh, like I get, I'm like, I think that anime of the year is the one thing where I would, I really, really wanted great pretender to win. So it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is very unfortunate. It's great. It's great. I'm glad it got nominated for somebody, but not one win. Come on, y'all. It's so unfortunate. Well, we're gonna move into our anime discussions here. We hatched a lot of anime this year so far, and arguably our favorite is Hori Mio, which we talked at length about last week, about the first couple episodes, and we watched episode three this week. Yeah, I watched it last night, and literally the episode started with some very relatable trauma where you have this shy, awkward kid who was not chosen for group projects, and everyone thought thought he was alone and weird. And yeah, that that did not need to hit as hard as it did. Yeah, I especially really liked everything that went on with Mia Mira in this episode. He's easily my favorite character in the show just because of the how relatable he is. Yes, because usually, you know, a classic a trope is that the shy, awkward kid is very good in school. Uh, that is not the case with Miyamura. He's very... He, school's very hard for him. And I love how this show portrays that. And I love how relatable not getting picked in group projects and being the awkward kid is because yeah i've i've been there too and you know you mentioned we talked about it last night when we watched it like me and Mer was told by ishikawa that it's that it's okay to be awkward and me and Mer said i wish i knew that 10 years ago i'm like oof yeah oof yeah i feel that on a on a very deep level <laughs> I on I wish that I had the show like Hori Mia around when I was in high school. This this series is great, and I love how ev- nearly every single character is written. Yeah, I do too, and I love. I also love in this episode. So obviously, uh, Mimur and and uh, 
and, and Hori are growing closer together. And there's a really sweet scene where they're, they're in her apartment and they hold hands together. And Hori just lets up like, I really like you. And then she's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I like your, I like your hands. Yeah, I like, I like your, hands. your hands. And, uh, and I, I have to throw this. I mean, you may not fully understand this comparison, but like, it reminds, it reminds me of my favorite, because growing up, I used to watch a lot of cop shows. And by far my favorite and the one that I would still rewatch today is, is Castle. And it reminded me, and because you basically have Nathan Fillion's character, uh, Castle, and he, his partner is, is Kate Beckett, a NYPD detective. And there's a scene where they, where they have to kiss to distract the guard so she can beat him up and, and and their conversation afterwards reminded me almost exactly of of Hori letting us so because after they kissed uh, castle's like oh that was amazing and she and she looks at him with like oh what did you just let slip there and i just love moments like that because you know admitting feelings can be a very s- scary thing and then trying to backtrack those feelings is so cute. And I just love how Hori Mia did, did that concept as well. Did it really well. Yeah. We also had that um, great conversation between Hori and Remy where Hori finally starts to realize her true feelings for Mia Mira when, when um, Remy tries to st- um, say that she's going to steal him away from her. <laughs> yeah. And she was not okay with that. She got extremely mad and defensive and Ishikawa knows about that because he overheard Remy telling one of her friends that. Yeah, we we overheard Ishikawa talk, um, overhearing a conversation between Remy and Sakura, who's also on the student council, about it. He then goes to confront Miyamira about this while they're hanging out. And they get into a big fight because Miyamira is completely oblivious and assumes that Hori just wants to be friends with him despite the fact that Ishikawa knows that not to be the case yeah and we see Ishikawa and and uh, Miyamura fight well it wasn't much of a fight <laughs> yeah it was pretty one-sided Miyamura like kicked his butt pretty hard yeah and his reasoning just like when he beat up Kakaru last week was oh he pissed me off yeah Woo, this guy's got some anger issues. That's <laughs> slightly. I mean, if you push his buttons, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say he has like, like there's Bakugo from My Hero Academia. So I wouldn't say Mirror Mirror exactly has like anger issues as much as if you push his buttons the wrong way, he's not going to be very nice to you. <laughs> that is, yeah, Bakugo's anger issues like personified. So that's yeah. a good point. And yeah, I, I love... I love how like every single Miyamura and Hori is just very wholesome and sweet. And Ichikawa is, is a great character. And I just loved how even after the fight, like Ich Miyamura and Ishikawa have a good conversation. Like all the like the, those the show is written so incredibly well and I love it. Like this was this was a very simple episode. Nothing super thought-provoking, but it was just so sweet. And that's that's the point of the show. It's sweet, it's wholesome, but also you know, some of the label stuff, like me and Murr's past about how he was the awkward kid growing up. Absolutely. Moving on to Dr. Stone, 
we had another new episode of Dr. Stone, and we finally get into the major plot of this season with them trying to get the telephone to the Sukasa Empire so that Senku's group can communicate with Taiju and Yuziriha. Yeah, so Dr. Stone, the first six episodes of the first season, basically has Senku, Taiju, and Yuziriha trying to survive in this new stone world and try to rebuild it. But then obviously they have to resurrect Sukasas to fend off a lion, which hmm, we haven't seen any lions since then. It's very interesting. I just have to point that out. But, you know, then Sukasa's empire grows and we see a bunch of issues. But Taiju Nuzuriha had to infiltrate Sukasa's army while Senku pretended to be dead and he built his kingdom of science. So you see, you see them trying to get the cell phone over there. But unfortunately, there's a slight problem. Yeah, just a slight issue. And that is Homura, who, of course, has been monitoring their group for a long time and knows each of them by name because of how long that she's been there scouting them. Yeah, she's extremely fast, where even Kohaku can't even catch her. Yeah, but she also notes that Kohaku is so fast that Homer wasn't able to lose her. <laughs> that is also very I'd true. say they're pretty evenly matched. Exactly. It's just the problem is that uh, Homer got a head start. And it takes a bunch of trickery to finally contain her. Yeah, Senku has to use a homemade flash grenade, which is pretty cool. <laughs> But um, even then, he's uh, she still gets away. But Senku puts uh, puts some tracking ra uh, radiation marks on her, or however you describe it. Was, it was uh, it was using the gemstone that they found in the previous gemstone, season. Gemstone, that's right. But yeah, it, it, it acts because the so. dust could reflect white, which is why it shines so brightly during the morning. And as if you can create a black light, which Senku made using the minerals that he magma and chrome dug up at near the end of the first season. He created the black light so that they could follow Homura's movements due to him rubbing all of that dust on her. Right. So they have to track her, but then they 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 do a information pincher movement where basically there's 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 a cell connection. Yes. On um, one side. Senku, yeah, Senku uses Morse code to communicate with Gen, since Gen is from the modern day you and is relatively smart himself. He knows Morse code so they could communicate a plan. And since they were so far ahead, they could pincer Homura in and capture her while still getting on with the plan and moving closer to the Sukasa Empire. Yeah, and once, and once she's defeated, you see a bunch of statues that haven't been unpetrified. Yeah, when they get to, when they arrive at the Sukasa's Empire, they see a bunch of statues that have been touched with blood with numbers written on them. Um, and Gen realizes that this is likely due to the order that Sukasa wants to revive them in. Right. And he said, and Gen said that there have been 32 people resurrected since Gen left to join the kingdom of science. Yeah. Cause the lowest number on the statues is marked as number 33. Magma, of course, being magma wants to not necessarily kill the people in the statues, but destroy their arms so that and uh, legs so that they wouldn't be able to be useful for Sukasa. 
Right, but again, basically, Sepson's like, uh, they didn't do anything wrong here, buddy. Like, yeah, they haven't done anything wrong yet, and there's still a chance that they won't do anything wrong in the future. Yeah, so that was great to see again show morality because you know, the the world's greatest con man even has moralities, and that that was very good to see. Yeah, it's not like he's willing to upright murder someone. Yeah, no. And and then after that, Gen kept mentioning throughout the episode there's a guy in the Sioux Council Army that has really good hearing. Yes. And Remarkably like, good hearing, apparently. Let's just say Chrome is a bit noisy. Yeah, yeah. Chrome and Magma are kind of loud, which is not exactly a good combination. <laughs> and he hears this and shoots an arrow, and it, it nearly hits Gen's face and the scream that again exclaims to say the least is quite hilarious yeah brandon mckinnis did such a good job here <laughs> it had me rolling dude that was oh, hilarious yes so he's gonna be a problem for the next episode but considering that you know he kind of knows where they relatively where they are yeah he knows that they did that there was someone hanging around at Senku's grave. <laughs> so he probably assumes that something weird was going on, but he doesn't know exactly what, since Homeware wasn't able to tell them that they have a um, long range communication. Yes, but then the mission the mission is successful and Oh yeah, we get we get a very, very wholesome moment at the end of the episode. Ah uh, yes, we get Oh, we get to hear Taiju's voice for the first time in, in so long. And it made me so happy. <laughs> um, him, him yelling Senku did bring a single tear to, to my eyes. which made, I was, It's just such a great moment. It is. It we been we missed very... our big lovable idiot so much. <laughs> yes. It has been so long since we've seen Taiju. And to, to see him cry and yell Senku's name, it was so satisfying. It just... Like, I love the first few episodes with Taiju in it, and to have him back, it was so happy. Oh, it, nothing but good emotions with that. It was, oh, it was, it was so good. Yeah, I'm just excited to hopefully have both of our best boys in the same place together because I'd, I'd love to see how Taiju and Chrome would interact. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> oh god, oh god. I don't think Senku could say a word with those two. That'd be so amazing. Them. Oh, yes. One of these days we'll get it. Yeah, hopefully we get that in the next episode. Um, I don't think we'll get it in the next episode, but I think we'll get it soon. Because we still need Taiju and Yuziriha to act as double agents for now. That is true. And luckily, Yuziriha has more brains than Taiju does. So luckily, it should go well. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad to have them back. I can't wait for the next episode. I'm really interested to see... Um, more of the people from Sukasa's empire um, get revealed and each of their different unique talents that led to Sukasa specifically reviving them. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, because what's the story with this uh, bow and arrow guy that can hear really well? Yeah. We'll find out. Yeah, we will find out. I'm, I assume that he's somewhere we gifted the how um, Homura and Hyoga are as well. So, very excited for that. Now going to something a bit more depressing. Yeah, we did watch an episode of Higurashi, and 
I am not okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, child abuse is terrible. Yeah, episode ten of Higurashi G O U is kind of rough. Not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, this arc is about child abuse. Um, so Sadako's parents were killed uh, during the second year. Actually, second or third year, I, I mix up which of the two is either Rika's parents and Sadako's parents. I can't remember if it was the second or third year. I think it's the second. I think it's the second. And during that time, uh, Sadako's uh, fa- uh, stepfather, which you know basically acted as her real father growing up, uh, was not the best of person. I don't know if he was fully abusing her, but basically she didn't, she didn't like him and she wanted him away. And so she submitted a false report of abuse. And because of this, when Sonico is actually getting abused, the child welfare services are on standby permanently, even though Sonico's uncle is literally abusing her and there is nothing anyone can do about it because the child welfare, welfare services are basically useless. Wait a minute. This is sounding an awful lot like a race. Dear God. Oh, yeah. Ugh. We also... We're going through a race and we watched we we watched a race, which is basically the anime that shows child abuse better than any right after we watched this episode. So that was we were not okay last night as we went to sleep. Um, Oh, we were not. (laughs) No. And basically, we we see Sadako coming to school late. We see we see Rika not knowing what to do because you know rika and sadako live together but sadako had to go live with her uncle and we learned that that the aunt of sadako was killed during the 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 previous year's cotton drifting festival uh it is and it is implied that she was beaten to death so yeah, it's implied yeah. that she yeah she was beaten to death by a baseball bat yeah mm. um and yeah it was let's see um who owns but who would own a baseball bat and who would have motive for murder hmm. mm. it sounds a lot like Sadako's brother yes who we haven't seen in the last year um, yeah because he's missing he's not he hasn't been confirmed dead but he is missing yes. And yeah, we see we see Sadako having to deal with her uncle on on her own because Sadashi is no longer there to protect her. And at the end of the episode, we see Sadako show up to school and she's very happy and jovial, like we've seen the previous two arcs. And Keiji uh, pats until, on the head until Keiji and, goes to touch her. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Keiji just tapped her on the head, like the affectionate way he does, and so can you please tell us what happened when he did that? Yeah, and then she has a has a mental breakdown, like nothing I've with so, nothing I've really really seen in anime before. So, how did was, you react when you saw this? I kind of, I mean, I hate to say it, but I was kind of excited about the fact that Higurashi was willing to go there. <laughs> so, yes, because um, yeah, it's it's it, it feels like. It felt like a very natural um, culmination of everything that we'd heard w- over the last two episodes. Yeah, there, there's so much built up in Keiichi 
KG's basically Subaru at this point, trying to do his absolute best to protect the ones he loves and and cares about. It's basically it, basically Higurashi is is more especially after seeing ReZero, he was becoming more of what if Subaru was in this kind of situation. That's basically what it is, and you see Keiichi going out of his way to try to protect to protect Sadako. Mm-hmm. And it's great to see it. His reaction to her breakdown broke me. Yeah. And I've seen and I've seen this in the original. I already knew exactly this was coming, but to see Keiichi just you could just see his heart broken in it, it was one of the most powerful moments I have seen in anime in quite a while because Keiichi's reaction to that just broke me. Yeah. Brittany Wilder did a fantastic job um, voicing Sadako in this episode. Um, I had a feeling, as I mentioned last week, I had a feeling that we were going to get a lot of really intense moments from Sadako like we had with um, Reina and Mion in the two previous arcs. So, Yeah, and Brittany Lauda's birthday was actually the was actually this past Thursday, the day that Akadama Drive and Hiroshi's dub new episode aired. And, and she was amazing. She was amazing in everything that came out this week. Um, for, even from the little bit that we got of her in Dr. Stone, this year's Uriha. So. Yes. And. Yeah. I really loved say, her as Dr. And, and Akadama Drive as well. She did say that Sadako is going to have some pretty and was going to have some insane moments. And when I saw that, my heart dropped. I'm like, oh, no, we're going to get that scene, aren't we? Oh, yeah. no. No, I, I had a pretty good feeling that I knew what she meant when she said that on Twitter. Yes. Because in the original, yes, uh, Sadako had a similar breakdown during class. And when I, when I saw uh, Sadako show up to class like jovial, I thought to myself, I was just sitting, spending three to five minutes just bracing for what was to come. And um, it did not disappoint. And, you know, Higurashi, like the way uh, Higurashi, uh, when they cry go, is going, like, it's going to become like easily one of my favorite anime of all time because, uh, you know, the original was great, but this is making it so much better. And they don't shy away from dark stuff. And it's this. This isn't just a. This isn't just supernatural horror. Like this episode is about child abuse, yes. a very real thing that unfortunately happens. Yes. And the fact that they're willing to do that. Like it makes me super invested in what happens when the more overarching plot elements happen because the child abuse is more of a subplot. But when the overarching plot happens, I care more because they're willing to tackle real life issues such as child abuse. And outside and outside of a race, there's no that this is child abuse done at its best. You know, like I said, a race a race does it perfectly. It, it is the single best show displaying a, such a dark topic like that along with others so very satisfied with this Higurashi episode and you want to know the great news Wintrow? we still have two more episodes of this arc yeah this is this is gonna be this is gonna get worse before it gets better assuming oh, yes. it gets better at all I'm assuming it will never get better and we're just going to slowly descend into more chaos oh yeah because usually because the first two arcs of of this show the third episode, the third ep, the end of the third episode was was usually where it got where it was at its worst, and the fourth episode kind of continued from that. But no, we've already gotten the probably the darkest moment in the second episode. 
So that's not terrifying at all. Yeah. <sighs> uh, God. Yeah. Uh, the dub for the show well, is so good. Yes. Michelle uh, Rojas yes. is doing such a damn good job with the dub here. I just. Oh, I know. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm very thankful that I've gotten you and also Clayton into this show. I'm, 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 I'm glad that I'm glad that this new version actually represents what I actually was intending to show in the original, which was a great and dark show that is just written incredibly well. That's what this show is. I'm, the timing could have been better for it to come out, and uh, I I enjoy every episode. Every episode is just so good. I love it. And yeah. yeah, let's move on to something a little happier, and uh, just slightly, a little bit, just a little slightly bit, happier, just a little slightly happier. I don't know, man. Wandavision was very interesting this week, <laughs> to say the yes. least. Um, and yeah, qu- since we just talked about here, it's just a real quick note. So th- there w- there's a reveal that we'll talk about at the end at the end of Wandavision, and the reaction was not very satisfactory. And Wintrobe said, because we watched this tonight before we watched Higurashi, he said, you know, I would have liked maybe a mental breakdown from this reveal. Well, yeah, guess what? Liked, Higurashi yeah, gave you exactly that. Yes, it did. I, man, my prayers were answered in the worst way possible. <laughs> um i should know i'm a fan of re-zero i should know better by now than the wish for things yes yes (laughs) yeah god (sighs) so yeah wandavision uh so agnes the neighbor hmm yes um we got several things this in this week's episode um and the fashion that we've been going through each episode where each episode has been in a different sitcom style from a different decade. It makes sense that for the one in the 2010s, they go for a modern family style. Yes. Modern family uh, has been the most popular sitcom over the last decade with, with the office being at its highest popularity in the, in the late two thousands. Yeah. And that also wasn't a family based sitcom while the modern family is. So it makes sense that that's what they went for. Yes, and we see Wanda, Agnes, and especially Vision uh, talking. And Vision's even like, wait, what am I doing? Why am I even talking to you right now? And I just love that so much. Well, yeah, because Wanda's doing this to distract Vision to stop him from coming home, presumably. We're presuming it's Wanda. It could be be someone else that we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, and I just just loved – Seeing Wanda deal with this, with the pressures of trying to contain the barrier because the barrier has gotten beyond her control, and a lot of things are glitching out, like, uh, like her, like her children's video games are glitching out. Yeah, and I think this is also the due with the fact that Vision is no longer with her. Yeah. So like her tether to reality isn't there. Yeah, and. <laughs> And you and you just see her breaking under stress, and she's just like very. You can tell she's trying to hold it together for the camera, and it's very. It, it it's great to see, but it's all like because it's done really well, and it has a great throwback to modern family. But man, it is sad. Yeah, um, it's interesting that we don't see um, Pietro at all for the mo- for the majority of this episode. I think that's an interesting choice. And that, again, likely has to do with Vision not being in the picture. Right. We see Monica Rambeau try to get through into the barrier with S.W.O.R.D.'s most advanced 
a spaceship. Well, space rover. Rover. And it can't break through. Yeah. It cannot break through. Yeah, Wanda's barrier is now because it's visible, it's now actively rejecting anything that's trying to enter. Right. And we see Monica just step through herself. She's quote Thanos fine. I'll yeah, do she it myself. forces yeah, she forces her way through the barrier, having to deal with her psyche being stretched. Um, trying to fit the many different sitcom style worlds that Wanda has put um, Westview through before she kind of overcomes it and then just walks through the barrier unharmed. Yes, and we see her eye color change, which, ooh. Again, as they've mentioned in previous episodes, she's had her DNA rewritten due to going through the barrier multiple times. Right. And, you know, her vision is not exactly normal as she sees a lot of colors and like textures are very distorted, but she now has, she now has some powers, let's just say, because in the comics she is. Yeah. So Agnes is revealed to be a character called Agatha Harkness, um, who in the comics is a witch which is important because she is one of the many, many people that taught Wanda how to use magic in the comics. And she isn't evil necessarily, but I wouldn't exactly call her good. And it's very likely that Wanda coming into the town and messing with it is affecting Agnes's own plans. Because she was probably already in control over the town's residents long before Wanda got there. And Wanda's influence is affecting Agnes's own control. Right, and we see that Agatha had this uh, witch laboratory slash stronghold, whatever you want to call it, in the basement of her house. And we see Timmy and Billy, sorry, Tommy, uh, in the basement. Well, gone, because Agatha was like, oh, yeah, they're just playing in the basement. But Wanda goes down there, and she doesn't see them. And what reason would Agnes have to do this? It's almost like Billy Wiccan could tell that there was more than her. Yeah, because he couldn't read her mind. And it's important to note that Wiccan, again, as we mentioned in previous episodes, has very similar powers to Wanda. So he shouldn't have been able to to read something out of her. Right, and you see that there were many instances throughout the show where Agatha had direct involvement in, for example, the magic show. Yeah, we learned that Agnes is the reason behind a lot of the things that happened throughout many of the show's episodes. Basically, anything that went seriously wrong was usually her doing. Right, because, you know, she has her own influence. And I just love how cheesy the reveal was in in all the videos, like really embracing the sitcom style. But it was done really well. And she killed the dog. Yes, yes, she killed the dog. You killed Sparky. Yeah. Which, which is, by the way, hilarious for me personally because when I was, because when I around the time I was born, uh, my parents actually had a dog named Sparky that ran away. Uh. So I, so when, so when Agatha's like, oh yeah, I killed Sparky. Like I, I I'm just like, okay, that's just really weird. Yeah. <laughs> but it's and great. as as JoJo's fans, we know that uh, uh, when a dog is killed, it's meant to show how evil the person is. I'm still so, mad at Dio for killing 
Jonathan's dog and phantom blood for no reason. Yeah, whether really the only JoJo's villain that didn't kill a dog was Cars. <laughs> so Cars is the least evil villain in JoJo's. Yes, by proxy. fact confirmed. Yeah, so that's pretty great. But um, but yeah, I really like Catherine Hahn's performance in this episode. I think that she did a fantastic job. Um, so I'm excited yeah. to see where the ep- next episode goes. Uh, again, as Sean mentioned earlier, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get a bigger freakout or mental breakdown from Wanda in this episode. So I'm hoping that happens either in the next episode or in episode nine. So we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, I thought during the episode, because you mentioned it afterwards, which basically confirmed that I'm not the only one that thought this. I'm like, she's just stand. Wanda's just standing there, not really reacting to something that should be earth shattering. Yeah, and there could be a reason for that, as we'll learn in the next episode. But for now, it's an an odd decision. Yeah, that is definitely true. Uh, Yeah, so I'm looking forward to the... I'm I'm definitely looking forward to what's next. I mean, we've got two more episodes, and then we're going to Falcon the Winter Soldier. Yeah, but... Uh, but to be perfectly honest, like considering how much you've been hyping Invincible so much, I'm a little more intrigued about that. Because Falcon Winter Soldier, I know what I'm going to get. And considering how good Amazon's adaptation of The Boys was, I am certain that Invincible will be amazing. Ah, uh, yes. The Boys. Amazing. Amazing show. All right. Well, that should wrap up this podcast before I let you uh, close it out. Um, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to say that uh, last week I had a really busy week, wasn't able to do why you should watch Snow with the Red Hair, but I will get to that this week. I do have a little more of an open week this week, just a lot going on last week, but look forward to that this week. And also, also more sports content. Champions League will return this week, so look forward to more content like that on the Can of Clark around the time that this podcast is published. So yeah. um, what about and- you? Yeah, and then for this week in comics, I'll be covering the fourth issue of Crossover by Donnie Cates. I've been loving Crossover for the last few months since it debuted. Um, It might be my favorite image title that's currently out right now. I'm loving Commanders in Crisis too, but I think that Crossover has a slight edge just because of how unique and interesting its story is. So I can't wait to talk about that. Um, I'm not certain what other content I'm going to be coming out with though. I do have an article planned sometime in the future to talk about um, emotionless protagonists in Eastern media. So be excited for that. Um, hopefully that'll come sooner rather than later considering that we're reaching the near the end of February now. Absolutely. And then in April, an article or two about Nier Autonoma, a video game that you're obsessed with. Yeah. Cause we're getting a remake of Nier Replicant. Um, in April, so I'll naturally talk a little bit about Nier Automata because it's one of my favorite video games I've ever played. I'll also try to put out an article about Eureka 7 um, considering Again. that that show is reaching the anniversary of its end. So that's exciting. Yes, and check out uh, his fantastic analysis article about Eureka 7 that he posted a few days ago. Yeah, I talk about the many, many well-developed relationships in Eureka 7 how they're all connected to each other. So I put a lot of effort in that one. Be nice if people read it. <laughs> yes, um, I recommend checking it out. But yeah, that'll do it for the Nerd Explosion podcast. Of course, if you aren't already following us, make sure to do that on either SoundCloud Spot or Spotify. Um, 
Yeah, I'm just, we're, oh God, we have so much to talk about and coming into next week as well, just from all the entertainment. So hopefully you'll catch us again next week. Thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of your day.